0: Well, we are working our way through the book of Ephesians and uh, we're going at such a pace that we we plan on the rapture happening before we finish the book. That's the plan. So you got a few weeks left before the Lord's return. But um, we are in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 through 5 today, and I titled it The Beauty of Sacrifice and the Loss of Inheritance. Now, if you... Uh, Last week was just uh, an amazing time, or two weeks ago on 4th of July, amazing time in verse 1 and 2. And if somehow that sermon escaped you, go and listen to it. Go to our website or go to our church app. And by the way, the notes are on our church app and website as well. And uh, listen to that message, to be followers of Christ in love. Powerful message. It was just a really sweet message sweet word from the Lord on imitators of Christ. At the end of chapter four, we imitate Christ in forgiving as God's forgiven us. And then the beginning of chapter five is to imitate, be mimes of Christ in love. And boy, we learn so much about that, that Christ's example was to love the enemies, to be merciful as our heavenly father is merciful. The father's desire is that we would be in the conformed into the image of his son. You say, well, what's God's will for my life? God's plan for your life is that you would be shaped into the image of Jesus. And boy, am I all for that. Wouldn't that just be wonderful? walk as Jesus walked. That's what the Father is bringing all these trials and different people and different verses and different messages. And all of these things are a part of the formula to help bring us as a shepherd brings the sheep into that place to we are walking conformed to the image of Jesus. And of course, the ultimate will will be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect in love and at that point the world will know our disciples not because we're bold or not because we're intelligent or not because we know the bible so well it's because they see us loving when the rest of the world's honking and irritated and flipping you off and we're coming in and and we're putting others people's interest before our own interest we're seeing others as better than ourselves. We're not demanding that people fall at our feet, but we're willing to bow and wash their feet. That's when the world will see Jesus and, and realize that we are his followers because we are in his image, in love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, in this the love of God was manifest towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Amen. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, listen, the propitiation of our sins. What is that? The sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In Hebrews 10, 12, but this man, Jesus, after he has offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So in 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the real focus of love is to realize how God has loved us. And once we understand how God has loved us, we now can love one another as God has loved us. But until we really understand how God has loved us, in in a sentence... He says, look at the sacrifice he gave. That in an instant spells out his love for us. And in Ephesians 5, 2, I didn't cover this in the last sermon, even though we looked at verse 1 and 2. I left this part off for a very good reason. Mainly we didn't have time, but another very good reason. It ties into verse 3. But in verse two, it says, walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for what? A sweet smelling aroma. Jesus in offering himself as an offering as the sacrifice for our sins, amazingly sweetly. He did it amazingly kindly. He did it amazingly graciously. He didn't get the nail through the hand going, I hope you guys are happy. You're such sinful creatures. You realize how much I'm having to be tortured. Then the other nail goes in. Ah, I don't know if you guys are worth it or not. I hope you guys are happy. Sitting your little heads off and look what's happening to me. It was just the joy set before him. He endured the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Even with nails driven through his hands and feet, crowned thorn upon his head, he was sweet. He was sweet. John, behold your mother. The thief on the cross next to him who had been mocking him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus was a sweet, smelling, sacrifice. He really was, wasn't he? He sacrificed while he was in human flesh, being tempted at all points. We're tempted. He never sinned. Every day he lived on this earth, having left heaven, was a sacrifice. Was it not? (laughs) As he was getting into his adult life at 12, after his bar mitzvah, he understood that he had come forth from the Father in heaven. He began to get it how he was in heaven with no pain, no sorrow, all power, all authority. And he gave all of that up and came sacrificially into sinful flesh. That of a human being in a manger through a virgin Mary as a baby, living every day sacrificially, didn't he? And then he continued to live sacrificially. He ministered for three years sacrificially. And then ultimately he died on the cross. Nobody can deny that was a sacrifice. But in, if we were to say, what was it about Jesus that was so Special. He came from heaven to earth, sacrifice. He came from being omniscient in in our omnipresence and in a heavenly body into an earthly body that can suffer and be tempted and die. Every, if we were to say it, he was just a sacrifice. He came. Every bit of what he did all 33 years that he lived was a sacrifice. In Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it Robert to be equal with God. He was God. There's no, there's no debate on this. But he made himself of no reputation a humble carpenter from Nazareth, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus, even before he was nailed on the cross, he tells us he lived his whole life carrying the cross, he tells his apostles in Luke 9:23, he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. He goes on in verse 24 to say of Luke 9:24, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus probably at 12 years old after his bar mitzvah and, and he wanted to begin his ministry. His parents wouldn't allow him. He had to go back to Nazareth and and, and evidently his father died most believe and he had to run the home at, at the age of 30 which was the legal age of an adult where he no longer had to submit to his mother uh, demands. He began his ministry but it appears that his whole life he had Denied himself. It seems as his whole life, he lost his life in this world. His whole life, he was taking up a cross and living the crucified life, being found in the form of a man. He became the lowliest of men, the servant of all men, and he continued to live daily a crucified life until he actually, literally, was crucified. So when Jesus was crucified on the cross, that was not the first day he was crucified. As a very very young man, he began living the crucified life to his flesh, to his own appetites, to his own wants, to his own desires. This is why Paul tells us, in order to follow Jesus' example, in Romans 12, Verse one, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So let's turn it around. The father was well pleased in the son. Why? Because he lived his entire life giving his body as a sacrifice staying in human flesh, being the lowliest of servant, living the crucified life. And the father said, well done. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased because he was doing all things that were holy, acceptable to God in, in the ways he lived while in this body. Going back to Philippians 2, look at the first four verses as Paul's thinking about these things. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Paul tells us he was like-minded with Christ, be like-minded with Paul as he was like-minded with Christ. Having the same love as Paul, as Christ. Being of one accord, of one mind. What's that look like? being like-minded, of the same love, of the same mind? Verse three, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each other's esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out only for his own interests, but for the interest of others. Do we get this? Jesus was looking out for our interests. That's why he lived the sacrificial life. That was the reason he was able to live the way he did, and eventually die on the cross. And it says, now for us in Hebrews 12, two, looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and was set down at the right hand of God. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because today I'm talking on a, a very difficult subject, especially for our culture. I'm talking on the issue of sex. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 today. But fornication and uncleanness and covetousness let it not even be named among you as fitting for the saints. Today in our society these are all described in such a way that, that it's puritanical and it's almost wrong for you to tell people they need to suppress their sexual appetites. Back when I first started pastoring in the early 80s, homosexuality was not accepted in the society by anybody. Democrats or Republicans. But it was pretty clear it was going to be very quickly. And it was very clear according to prophecy that we would have to become like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah to fulfill the, the, the times in which the Lord would return. So we knew that eventually not just a country, but the whole world would be permeated with not just sex, but with homosexual sex. But at that point, it was no big deal. But then, I mean, literally within a year, you became the enemy by calling homosexuality sin. They basically said, look, I know what the Bible says, but there's other pastors that have reinterpreted how they interpret the Bible. And, and it's, it's a selfish homosexual sex, not the homosexual sex itself. And in turn, just like the Bible says in the last days, eventually good becomes evil and evil becomes good. And all of a sudden, believers who stood the ground of saying, I'm defining sex according to God's word, became very quickly enemies of a society, and now enemies of the state. There are pastors in Europe, in Sweden, in Switzerland, and in Canada who are in prison for simply reading Romans 1. James Dobson was told if he ever said homosexuality was on a sin on the radio in Canada, he would never be on the radio again, and he would not be allowed in the country. So we've seen this. So the question is then proposed. So are you a Puritan? Are you a Pharisee? Are you an evil person for saying homosexuality is sin. Because I know homosexuals that are wonderful people. I think they got the right r- word. They're very gay. They, they seem to be a very happy, bright-colored dressing people. Good at cooking and, and uh, decorating houses. And it, they, they sort of have this picture. And, and you're, you're like this big, mean guy picking on this very sweet person. And I know them, they've explained to me, the the moment they thought about sex at whatever time that was, 10 or 11 or 12, they knew they were attracted to the same sex their entire life. And I look back at their life, even when they were little, they preferred to play with the dolls rather than go out and play baseball with the brothers. And, And you have these kind of stories. And I don't doubt them. But what I do with the homosexual who tells me he seems to be born that way, why is it wrong to live out his natural inclination sexually? Because I think God made me to be a homosexual. I simply ask the question, is it wrong at some point to judge sex? And the homosexual, if he's thought about this, will definitely say yes. Because, see, there are homosexuals who say, I'm not only attracted to people of the same gender, but I'm attracted to very young boys. Now, don't be grossed out by that. It's a non-profit organization. Look it up. It's called Man-Boy-Love Association. And they have the right to meet in public buildings for free. And they do, all over the country. Typically on Sunday mornings in libraries, they have their meetings and they swap information. Now if they ever put it on their computer or get caught with the pictures, they go to jail. But yet on a number of occasions, I've been told that age should be lowered and they are working hard on lowering that age and they've been successful in many places the age has been dropping. In Europe, it's 16. In Canada, it's 16. In some of our own states, the age is 14. In many places throughout Asia, there is no number where it is a child is considered a minor and it's illegal. But then I would ask the homosexual, okay, you see that Having sex with young boys, 12, 13, is not wrong still. It's just our society hasn't caught up to modern times yet. But we'll get there eventually. That 18 age will come down to 12 or 10, whatever you need it to be. And so it's only illegal because we're still prudish. We're still being plagued by our Judeo-Christian ethic of our forefathers. So you're still not really able to express your love um, with young boys legally. But you can push him to the point to say, okay, is it wrong for a 50-year-old guy to have sex with a two-year-old child? And I have not found anybody yet to say no. It's, yeah, that, that is wrong. Okay, but if that guy tells you he was born that way, he's always been attracted to little tiny children that way. Ever since he was 12 or 13, he's had the desire for that. Would you say that his sex is wrong and that he's messed up? That he needs to suppress those desires? That he needs to war against his own body and fight against the desire to have sex with two-year-old children? And he'll say yes. So I said, okay, then we, we agree on the fact that it's okay to judge somebody else's sex. 50-year-old guy having sex with a two-year-old child, your sex is wrong. You can say that. Even as a homosexual. Yes, I can say that. Okay. So we both agree it's okay to say sex is wrong sometimes. Matter of fact, it's even criminal. So now it's not a matter of whether we judge people's sex. It's how do we judge people's sex? And very simply... It's by God's word; He created it. God created sex. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's it's it is one of the most joyful things of life. It really is. But God has very specifically said it happens in marriage and only in marriage. But now in our society, it's permeating that it is again. It's, it's a, a Judeo-Christian suppression that you, one man can only have one woman for life. And there's a, you know, the playboy mentality says, yes, I want to be married and I want to have kids with that marriage partner. But I think my marriage partner should understand, as a man, I need to have sex with a number of women because men have this testosterone. Men are curious. It's not going to affect our marriage. I'm not divorcing you. I don't want to be separate from you. You know, let, let's face it. There, there's a lot of wealthy families that had that understanding. The Kennedys, you guys remember that? The dad Kennedy, you know, for President Jack Kennedy, his dad told him, it's like, hey, the, the women just need to understand we, we have a little something-something on the side going regularly, and they just need to take it. that that's just the way men are, are made. God understands it. The priests understand it. It's it's just the way we Kennedys are. are. And so everybody was sort of a a known, hidden family trait. And we see that amongst the wealthy, that this is an acceptable practice. And so, again it does seem today in the midst of so much sex being accepted in so many different forms that adultery is, is still a very wrong sex according to even Hollywood. It seems that people being pressured into sex is still very wrong, even according to Hollywood, like the uh, Weinstein uh, thing and, and the, and the others that you know about it in the news, pressuring people to tricking people into making people feel like they can't get out of a sexual act uh, because of the power of the situation. It's wrong. So, so we do say sex is wrong. It's just a matter of where we say sex is wrong. And, and let's just make it abundantly clear. You will never find a positive case of homosexual sex in the Bible. There won't be anybody in the, there won't be a situation in the Bible where it's like, now here's two homosexuals that are wonderful and God blessed them and, and they became one of the tribes of Israel. You're not going to have this. It's always negative. And I understand people try to monkey around with the different passages on homosexuality. I just say this and you'll never find a positive case. It's always sin. Sex outside of marriage is always Sin. And so the conclusion of the matter is, is that at some point we have to suppress our sexual desires. Okay, I've had a number of men who who have told me that they always have had a strong desire to have sex with very young girls. They haven't given in to that. But especially when they were in construction, little 10, 11-year-old girls would walk by and the construction workers would heave sexual um, innuendos at them. And, I, and, I, and he, he was just saying, he was, man, just thinking they were the best-looking girls he had ever seen. Children. But that's the way his brain had been wired as long as he can remember. And was saying, you know, am I unredeemable having that desire? And I'm like, no, it's temptation's not a sin. But, but yeah, I, I think every one of us have malfunction in the brain. <laughs> and that to some degree, we want to have sex that God has said no to. I, I would say almost every single human being has thought, I would like to have sex with another person other than my spouse. Or if a single person, I want to have sex with multiple different girls. I think it's, it's it's just part of our human sinful nature to say, wow, I wonder what it would be like to see them naked or what it would be like to make out with them or what it would be like to have sex with them. I, 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 I mean, obviously that is the case with everybody. Uh, marketing says so, <laughs> right? There's not too many uh, you know, Catholic priest with a black uh, outfit and a bow tie, you know, saying what kind of shampoo to buy. Oh, well, oh, a father so and so used that shampoo. I think, I mean, typically it's a girl in a bikini saying this is the kind of uh, shampoo I use, going, whoa, I got to get some of that tomorrow. <laughs> okay, sexuality arouses in us, and, and they put millions of dollars into marketing saying, you will act on your sexual impulses subliminally, <laughs> if not actually. So, we all have to say no. We all have to really sometimes beat ourselves into obedience because the no isn't working. <laughs> no, no, ah, you know. We're having to beat our body in subjection. We're having to die to ourselves, we're having to deny ourselves. Jesus was tempted in all points. We are tempted. But he never sinned. Jesus denied himself, beat his body into subjection. He was a 13-year-old boy. He was an 18-year-old man. He, he He knew what it was like to have sexual pressure going on in his body. But yet, He didn't sin. Temptation is not sin. He didn't sin. So now in this sex-saturated society, this Roman society, Ephesus, remember they had the the goddess Diana there, the temple of goddess of Diana. One of their main parts of the worship of Diana is they had thousands of girls who were prostitutes. And you could go and pay a little money and have prostitute. And let me tell you something. It was young kids that were the prostitutes. Just like we see in India today. In many of the Hindu religions where they'll take young girls as as young as three, four, five years old. And put them into the various Hindu temples. And guys can come and have sex with them. There are brothels, illegally so, in the Philippines like that. And throughout Asia. This is going on right now as we speak. This isn't something that happened a thousand years ago. It has no relevance in our day. It's basically telling them, express those sexual appetites, no matter how outrageous they are. But God has made it clear that All uncleanness is outside a man having sex with a wife is sin. So the word fornication here at the very top of the list, he he could have started with murder. (laughs) He could have started with some other sin. But he starts with fornication here sex outside of marriage. Fornication is not an act of love. It's an act of lust. It's insensitive. It's self-gratifying. It's about self. I want to gratify myself. A person's insensitive to the feelings of guilt that will be imposed upon the other person. They're forcing their will and desire on them. They're thinking mainly of the momentary pleasure how mistaken the world and Hollywood are on this issue. And all uncleanness. Just, just like us today, we, we try to find the little uh, ways around the rule, around the law, right? And this is why it says in Galatians 5, it gives four different ways to describe sexual sin. It says in Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh are, and the top of the list are, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. That lewdness is is just giving yourself a license. I, I know that most Christians think it's wrong, but I give myself a license. I know I wouldn't, I don't want people to know about this, but secretly I give myself a license to do it and say God's okay with it and I'm okay with it. So four different words because, you know, I, I've, I've had couples that are, are dating to say, now, the Bible says don't have sex, right? Because, yeah, we're, we're laying naked in bed together, but we're not actually having intercourse. But we touch each other and kiss on each other, but we're, we're not sinning, right? Because we're not actually fornicating. Or people will say... Hey, how far can I go before marriage with, you know, not actually having sex, but how far can I go and and God be okay with it? And this is why he gives these words, fornication, uncleanness, sexually unclean. If it just, if it doesn't, if it, you know, walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck, right? If it's not imitating Christ and denying yourself, taking up the cross, when people are dating and saying, how far can I go? I want to I say your question's wrong. It's how can I build them up in Christ? How can we better effectively pray together? How does a man and a woman, two different ways of thinking, read the Bible together? How can I wash her in the water of the word as I'm engaged to her and she's going to become my wife? Those are the right questions. not, you know, how far can I unzip without sinning? And and so he, he just says, you know, don't don't try to get around it. God set the boundary, and yes, it's a very narrow boundary. But that's the way God designed it. God made sex, it's wonderful, and this one de- design. But people say, if it's just in marriage only, do you know what a sacrifice that would be for me? Exactly. Exactly, it is a sacrifice. And that is the example of Jesus, to walk in sacrifice. I I get that. For many of us who have, you know, widened the boundary, and there's all kinds of sexual appetites being fulfilled, whether it's through pornography or or 10 other ways in our society, to now pull all of that back, and bring it back into the marriage bed only, it would be a huge sacrifice. I I get that. That's why I'm taking the time to explain to you why you must reason thus. is yes, I understand. It is a sacrifice. It's like taking up a cross and going to the crucifixion In 1 Thessalonians 6, 9, Paul gives another list there. He says, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, and sodomites are all inappropriate for believers. He says here in Ephesians 3, let it not even be named among you. It's not fitting for saints, holy ones, those who are sanctified, set apart, for God's use. Again, the way that God looks at us is the priest would go into the temple and they had special sh- shovels, they had special instruments, they had special uh, candlesticks, and, and the table of showbread, and the holy of holies. All these things were sanctified to God for the priest to use, but never outside the temple. They were sanctified for God's use only. As believers, that's what he calls us. We are now vessels only to be used in worship to God. So to take the shovel or to take the candle stand, the menorah that was only to be in the temple and to take it home and use it as a nightstand or to use the shovel to scoop up, you know, Fido's poop and then take it back to the temple and now use it for holy consecrated worship to God only, we can see how horrible that'd be. You just use a different shovel. He goes on now and talks about the mouth in verse four neither filthiness, it's the same thing. He's talking about sexuality, a sexual filthy mouth, or foolish talking, a sexually joking around foolish speech, coarse jesting, this is inappropriate joking or telling sexual jokes. Again, he says, these just aren't fitting. For one who's walking with Christ, wanting to talk like Christ, wanting to be mimics, imitators of Christ, these things just aren't fitting. Paul had said earlier, remember in chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. In First Peter 4.11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as it were the oracles of God. But then he says, what would it look like? The giving of thanks. You're, instead of sitting around thinking about sex and how you can't have it and how you gotta say no to it and you're sitting around thinking about dirty jokes and, and and coarse jesting and and man I'd love to do that and love to do that, you're talking with the guys boy do you see that lady right there if if I could get her naked and alone boy I'll tell you what I would do to her and you're telling your buddies this while you're drinking at the bar no, this is so out outside of what of, of an example of Christ, but yet what would be happening is joyful, fruitful, peaceful, edifying speech. Galatians 5.22 said the fruit of the Spirit's joy, it's peace, it's goodness. So he, he's, in, he's saying, Paul is saying here, I understand, especially to the men, sex is on your brain a lot. Your body impulses are going off almost nonstop. I know you ladies could probably never understand it, but we wake up in the morning feeling sexual. We go to bed at night feeling sexual. We have sexual dreams. Every time we see an attractive person, and yes, it could be somebody very young, it's it's sick, it's horrible, it really is wrong. But yet there's this overwhelming attraction, and the body is just going off like fireworks sexually, and you're just thinking, man, if this is happening like all day long in my body, and then God says, You can only drink at this one well, how can those two things go together? And in essence, God is saying to all of us, this is an area in particular that you can deny yourself and live the sacrificial life. And yes, it's going to be probably one of the hugest battles in your life. I have a good friend, as a matter of fact, he was an elder at my church who 12 years old, had nothing but homosexual desires. Got saved in his early teens. And he realized this is an appetite that is sin. And he denied himself. He got married. He had a number of kids. But I've talked to him for 30, 40 years. There's not a day he doesn't go by that he doesn't have this desire to have sex, especially with very young teenage boys. It's just screaming in his body to want to have, he never has had homosexual sex, but yet he's just screaming to have homosexual sex, especially, he's my age in his 60s, but especially with young junior high boys. Those really just turn him on. And this has been going on ever since I've known him in his 20s. And I'll tell you what, he is one of my heroes because <laughs> he's had opportunities. He's actually had teen boys that could sense his arousal and pursue him and him like Joseph having to run for his life. But We all have wrong sexual desires. If I acted on them, my wife would divorce me. (laughs) If I acted on them, my kids wouldn't respect me. If I acted on them, I'd be spiritually bankrupt. If I acted on them, I wouldn't be walking in the Spirit and having the fruit of the Spirit. There's not a person here that doesn't have these appetites we have to say no to. we got to take our mouth and not speak them. In verse 5, listen to this. For this you know, it's it's common knowledge, especially to believers it's common knowledge. That nor fornicator, unclean person, covetous man, who is really an idolater. This is what we're really talking about. When you're seeking self above and you're seeking pleasure above everything, that's your God. A lady we're going to see in 2 Timothy, it says in these last days, you'll see a Christianity that's a false Christianity. And you'll, one, of the, one of the signs is they have a greater lover for, love of pleasure rather than a love for God. It's idolatry. And this you know that no fornicator, or unclean person, covetous man who's an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now I just want to stop here to say many people say there it is, you don't go to heaven. So if you give in to your sexual appetites, you lose your salvation, or you've proven you were never saved. Because when you get saved, all you do is have the right sexual appetites. It's just, it's just completely wrong, guys. Salvation is a gift of God. Salvation is a calling. And in Romans 11, it says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Right? My sheep, it's a calling. My sheep will hear my voice and they'll follow me and none of them will perish. They shall have everlasting life. I guarantee it because they're in my hand. I guarantee it because they're also in the Father's hand and he's greater than all. Of them, I lose nothing. Of them, I lose none. So I don't want you to think that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is wrong sex. And if I take of that fruit, I damn myself. You've minimized yourself. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says all other sins are outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins against himself. You minimize your own ability to be fruitful. You minimize yourself in eternal rewards. You damage yourself and you damage your internal reward system by giving into that. And so... The moment we believe in Jesus, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, will have everlasting life. That's a done deal. We're not talking about salvation here. He is not not, not saying here this, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater will ever go to heaven even if he believes on Jesus. That's what a lot of people interpret that as. But it says plainly their inheritance. What is an inheritance? An inheritance is something the family receives, right? The bride receives inheritance. The children receive an inheritance. Strangers don't receive the inheritance. You know, we don't look up at a, a you know in the newspaper, oh, Charlie Jones died. I go knock on his door. Hey, is, did Charlie leave me anything? who are you just a stranger but I was just saying we, we don't expect an inheritance from him right so the fact that he's saying here you lose an inheritance he's saying you're you're part of the family so as a family member he says you can lose your inheritance let's understand this guys in Romans 14, verse 11 and 12, hang in here with me. It's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. Then, verse 12, so then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Every believer won't go before the white throne of judgment. We're not going to be damned to hell. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation. Perfect love casts out all fear because fear involves judgment. Judgment involves torment. And you have been perfected in love. You're never going to experience judgment or torment. But we do do go before the Bema seat of Christ, the Olympic Games, where they gave out the wreaths, the crowns. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our life. I think there's going to be a video screen of of all our life. It can play back, you know, 65 years, 80 years. Well, that would take a long time. We have eternal life. We got it. We got the time. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9 through 10. Take a look here. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, referring to being in the human body, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? For, because we must all appear before the judgment seat, the bema seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what we've done, the good things and the bad things. You're going to be talking to God about the good things you did while in your body. And he'll talk to you about those good things and give you reward. But we'll also talk about the bad things we've done in our body. You're going to have a conversation face-to-face with Jesus about the bad things you've done in your body. 1 Corinthians 3, listen here, verse 11 through 15. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or the opposite of that, wood, hay, and straw, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 3 each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So those things that we've done that are hay, wood, and stubble are going to burn up. The gold and the silver, they don't get affected. They get liquefied and then they become solid again. They, they remain. If anyone's work, which he has built on, endures, it will receive a reward, an inheritance. An inheritance. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But himself will be saved, yet as through fire. All that will be left is salvation. You are saved. You're going to heaven, but you don't have reward. You've lost. Look at in verse 15 again. He will suffer loss. Make it clear. He's still saved. But yet when he stands before the beam of seat, because of his flesh their will he will suffer loss this is what paul's talking about here in ephesians 5 don't be deceived don't be tricked you're going to lose your reward and end up suffering loss for all of eternity you're saved you're going to be in heaven but you won't have the reward that God intended. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, Do you not know that those who run in a race run all run, but one receives what? The prize, the reward, the inheritance. Run in such a way that you obtain it. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Before the beaming seed of Christ, eternal rewards. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body or beat my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself have become disqualified from being born again. No, that's a gift of God. It's not of yourself, it's not of works, but he's disqualified of the reward that God wanted him to have. What is this reward? Well, one has various crowns. In 2 Timothy 4.8, we see there is a crown for living righteously before God until the end. Paul says there's going to be a crown where God says, Paul, you denied yourself, you took up the cross, you followed me, you, you had to, to live this sacrificial life and you did righteously. You're already righteous because I gave you of my righteousness positionally. But then you also, while in this body, lived a righteous life. James 1.12 says, when we go through temptation and we don't give in to that temptation, there's a crown. Hopefully we'll have many crowns. 1 Peter 5.4 says, there's a crown for being a faithful shepherd or pastor. In Revelation 2.10, there's a crown for enduring persecution. In Revelation 3.11, there's a crown for enduring as a believer in these last days. We're all living the last days, have a special crown for making it through the the war zone. And I'm sure there's crowns for for just being a faithful parent, for being a faithful spouse. These are the ones that are mentioned. Then there's various rewards mentioned. And boy, I I did not give you the whole list that's in the Bible here, by the way. But in Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12, there's a reward for standing firm during persecution. Jesus there in Matthew 5, 11, and 12 said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Matthew 6, 1, he says, there's a reward for tithing and doing it quietly, not for men to observe But as we give of our charitable deeds, not to get praise of men, but to hide it only to get a praise from God, our reward will be in heaven. In Matthew 6, he says there's rewards for praying. Again, not outwardly for men to see and to say, oh, what a prayer warrior he is, but quietly in your closet for God to see. In Matthew 6, 16 and 18, there's a a reward for fasting, again, not openly for men to say, oh, look at them, she's so spiritually he's fasting, but secretly. In Luke 6.35, rewards are for loving your enemies. In, in Luke 6.35, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. It's hard to love your enemies, isn't it? I can at best be Switzerland to them, you know? I don't curse them, but I don't bless them. Yeah, I know, it's hard. But he's actively, if they're hungry, feed him. If they're thirsty, give him a drink, actively. In Colossians 3, 22 to 24, there's rewards for working faithfully for our earthly employers as if we were working for God. And it says in, in 22, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with high service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of what? The inheritance. There it is. You'll receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. On the days the rewards will be given out, Jesus talks about it. It's a day to be celebrated in Matthew sixteen twenty seven. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. So there's going to be people that are saying, "The bema seat, it's coming. I'm going to be standing before Jesus at the bema seat. Oh, this is going to be great." Well, then there's others who know they didn't live the sacrificial life. There's others who know they didn't live the sanctified life. Look and it says God wants us to have a full reward lacking nothing. But notice in 2 John 1, eight, Look to yourself that, you, that we do not lose those things we worked for. But that we may receive a what? Full reward. And then all not only that, but all receive the same do all all do not receive the same reward, but it's according to faithfulness and our submission to and obedience. In first Corinthians 4 2, moreover is required in stewards that one be found faithful. If you're not found faithful, then the rewards aren't there. In Luke 19, 7, and he said to them, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful and a very little have authority over ten cities. You guys know the story of the talents and the minas right in Luke 19 18 and 19 and the second came saying master your mina has earned five minas and like he said you will have be over five cities many believe this is in the millennial reign that those who don't have the reward will not be kings and priests unto God in that millennial reign they'll be there as believers in their new bodies on the earth but they won't have cities they won't have positions of authority in the millennial reign, which will be a dishonor to them. Listen to Revelation 19, verse 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Now, listen to this. Verse 8. To her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean, bright, and the fine linen is what? the righteous acts of the saints. So there are going to be those of us who are the bride of Christ, who are going to be gloriously arrayed because we had righteous acts of following Christ as saints. Some are not going to be equally ready. Listen to 1 John 2.28. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence... And what? Not be ashamed before him at his coming. 1 Corinthians 3, we just read that. Others know it's coming. Their works are going to be burned with fire and they will suffer loss. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 2 in a faithful saying that we should not forget. He says in um, verse 12, if we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Again, not salvation, but he will deny us the reward that could have been ours if we were willing to suffer with him. In Jude 1, 20, 23, it says, but you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God. This is for the last days, believers. Looking for the mercy of our Lord and in Christ into eternal life. On some have compassion, making a distinction. Now listen to Jude twenty verse twenty three, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. They're believers, but they're going to shrink away in shame at it its appearing. They're believers, but they're they're very close. Stink of the drugs they're taking or the sex they're having. They they even as they're getting raptured into their new body, the, the, there's this putrid flesh upon them. What are actual heavenly rewards? I, I think, just in short, it's a new the type of body we get. In Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to whom which shall be revealed where? In us. Paul said earlier in verse 16 and 17, the spirit himself bears witness our spirit. We are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. And where is that glory? It will be revealed what? In us. You see, just like the bride that was glorious and shining because of the righteous acts, I think there are I think there are gonna be some in heaven, like the thief on the cross who has no rewards. He's gonna be glad to be in heaven. It's gonna be like, you know, a five-year-old kid who says, Can we do something special? I mean, really, really, really special. Well, what what is it? I want to go to McDonald's and have a Happy Meal. And that five-year-old is at McDonald's eating his Happy Meal going, life can't get better than this. But then your wife says, hey, can we do something really special for our anniversary? I mean, really, really something special? I know. Take her to get a Happy Meal. It wouldn't happen, would it? So I think in heaven, there's going to be people there going, we're in heaven, isn't this great? It doesn't get better than this. Then I think there's going to be others in a more glorified body, maturely seeing the deep things of God for eternity. Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven. You don't want to be in heaven without treasure. In Matthew 6, he makes it clear. Yeah, those who are willing to suffer with him, those who are willing to deny themselves, those who are willing to not live for their own sexual appetites, their own fleshly desires, no matter how strong that impulse may be. But they crucify it. Did you understand? Let's say you live 100 years and you get to heaven and you're going, man, I suffered, I denied myself, I I followed Christ and I obeyed him and and. It was hard. It was really, really hard to deny myself daily and take up a cross and follow Jesus. But for a hundred years I did that. Do you, do you realize we're coming back to this earth? I think God's gonna give it a facelift, but we're coming back to this earth for a thousand years in a brand new body. Well, when I was on earth, I didn't travel much. You got a thousand years to travel. Well, I never got to hike Kilimanjaro. Go for it. You don't need any oxygen Take Your legs won't hurt. Fly. Take your horse and fly. (laughs) Spend 100 years snorkeling without any aid. (laughs) Spend another 100 years skiing the Alps. Spend another 100 years through Africa experiencing all the animals. You got 700 years left. Do you understand? God never takes unless he gives better. God never suppresses and says, walk the narrow road that leads to life without the reward being a thousand times better. God never takes away that he doesn't give better. Remember that. And then after a thousand years on earth, Satan is released, and those who have populated the earth in that thousand years can side with Satan or side with Jesus. But there's a final battle, and we're in it, and we get to kick Satan's butt. That's pretty sweet, isn't it? Do you know how badly I want to kick Satan's butt? Personally, Satan, we're all going to get that opportunity. And then he's going to be locked up in hell for a permanent eternity. Then everything's going to melt with the fervent heat and there's going to be a new heavens and what? A new earth. Better than this. Not for a thousand years. <laughs> but for a gazillion, gazillion years. Well, I've got to deny myself and take up a cross. It's so hard. I hope Jesus appreciates it. Guys, Put your eyes on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. The rewards, as Paul says here in Romans 8, I do not consider the sufferings of this present time to be compared with the glory that shall shall be revealed in us, right? So the question needs to be asked, do Christians sometimes have sexual immoral lives? it's yes we see that first corinthians 5 remember the guy has this impulse to marry his stepmom his sexuality just says i've got to have her i got to have her i got to have her i got to have her and dad finally divorces her he swoops her up and they come to church on sunday and everybody in the church says we don't judge we don't judge we don't judge We just accept that this guy's new wife is a stepmom and seems a little sketchy, but, you know, let's just live and let live. And Paul says, that's sexually immoral. Go read Deuteronomy 24. (laughs) In the Old Testament, at a different time, they would have been stoned to death. We don't stone to death in the New Testament, but kick them out of the church. Why? Why does he say that? Look in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 5 deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. why? because of the fact that his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. remember in 1 Corinthians 11 where people were taking communion in an unworthy manner and Paul says they, they're not aware of why they're weak, sick and dying but the reason is he says in 1 Corinthians 11:32, Because when they are judged, they're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Since they're not going to be judged in front of the white great white throne judgment, I'm going to go ahead and judge them now by taking them to heaven early, shortening the amount of time they can gain reward, dishonoring them by having them die early because they're not going to be judged for eternal damnation. They're going to go to heaven for eternity, but they're going to be greatly lacking in reward. Sober message, not one I wanted to teach, (laughs) but yet it's, I think, so relevant to our times, is it not? Lord, we come before you now, and we ask in Jesus' name that we would not be ignorant of these things, that we're not trying to gain salvation or not lose salvation. We're not trying to not get blackballed and end up being sent to hell after all. We know our salvation is sure. You began it. You will complete it. You will never leave us nor forsake us. Neither things present nor things to come, neither things of the flesh or things of the spirit will ever separate us from your love for all of eternity in heaven. But Lord, there is the reality here. Paul says there's a bite in that we God's desires. We have great reward in heaven, and it's going to come by be willing to endure, be willing to suffer, be willing to live a sacrificial life sweetly, as a beautiful fragrance unto you, willingly, joyfully, not grudgingly, not complaining but joyfully giving our lives as a living, holy sacrifice unto you. Wash us now in the water of your word. In Jesus' name.